Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegamelch. everyone. Thanks for joining us today. We've got a really great episode for you today. We're going to talk about Ebola. We're going to talk about the 2014-2015 Ebola crisis and what came of that from the emergency supplemental funding that went to building biocontainment units and really working to integrate our systems for healthcare response across all the various sectors to really prepare our cities and our nation for the eventuality of having an Ebola patient, but also how that built and reinforced our ability to respond to a wide range of infectious disease threats. We're going to talk with two of uh, the many architects of the these improvements since then. Uh, we've got Dr. Laura Evans from the Bellevue Health Center, as well as Dr. Michael Phillips from NYU Langone Health System. And uh, they're going to share a lot of insights on how this came to be, uh, where it's at, and what the future has to hold. So enough of me talking. Let's sit back, relax, and we'll see you on the other side. All right. Thanks for joining us today. We've got two great guests to talk about everyone's favorite topic, Ebola and biocontainment. Uh, We've got Dr. Evans, Associate Professor of the Department of Medicine at NYU. She's also the Director of Clinical Care at Bellevue Hospital Center and the Medical Director for the Special Pathogens Program at Bellevue Hospital. Also joining us is Dr. Phillips. He is the Associate Professor of the Department of Medicine at NYU and also the Associate Director for Clinical Services and the Chief Epidemiologist at NYU Langone Health System. Thank you both for joining today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So when we talk about biocontainment and Ebola, I wonder if you could just kind of give us a little bit of a history on how, what that is, first of all, and how both of you kind of got involved in that here in New York City. Sure, I'll start with that. So in, in New York, this really started for us back in 2014 as we started getting word of the large-scale Ebola outbreak in West Africa at that time. And there were at that time preceding that there were a couple of biocontainment units, which are these sort of specialized clinical care environments that have sort of enhanced infection prevention and control practices, super highly trained staff, and usually a dedicated area within a clinical delivery site to provide supportive care and and potentially experimental medications to patients with um, high-consequence infectious diseases or what we might refer to as Ebola or special pathogens infections. Um, But we didn't have one of those in New York. We at Bellevue started preparing back in 2014 because we had heard about this outbreak, and clearly in New York City, being the sort of a safety net system, we thought our risk was um, not high, but certainly higher than many sites within the United States. So we started uh, sort of developing our own version of a biocontainment unit to provide care should anybody with Ebola return to the United States or should somebody come into our emergency department with high suspicion of Ebola. Yeah, just comment that, you know, really under um, Dr. Evans's leadership, you know, there weren't many roadmaps. There wasn't a guidebook that you'd pull out at that time. And I think, uh, you know, pulling together the team was um, obviously some good resources that were coming out of CDC and some of the other more established units, but to develop a 
you know, a de novo program within a hospital is pretty is pretty impressive. Or was it was unique? I think twenty fourteen was really illuminating for a lot of us in healthcare delivery and in emergency management as well because we had messaging at that time that you know any hospital in the United States can provide this enhanced level of infection prevention and control any hospital in the US can safely deliver care to patients with the most communicable most infectious um, diseases and then i think we all had kind of a wake up call um, in Dallas with you know, if you, if you remember back to those days, there was a man who traveled to Dallas uh, from Liberia, I believe it was. Um, and unfortunately, two nurses who cared for him in the hospital in Dallas ended up having secondary transmission or getting Ebola as part of taking care of this patient. And that was a real game changer in terms of the way we thought about how the healthcare system is prepared to handle really infectious diseases. Yeah. And it points out two things is that, yes, you know, any healthcare worker may come across a patient with a highly communicable disease, but typically those patients in the earlier stages of their disease, they're walking, they're talking, they could present at any ambulatory site. Uh, regardless, those healthcare workers need to know the basics, and it's above and beyond you know when to wash your hands. It's actually how do you approach a patient that's sick? What sort of basic protective equipment do you put on? A gown, a gloves, a mask, etc. And then that critical step of evaluating that patient to see, could this be Ebola based on the patient's travel history and symptoms? Uh, But then it's really important that that patient get referred on in a safe manner to an area that can take care of these patients. I think that's a big big point. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, too. You mentioned 2014 being a really eye-opening year. We had this really bad global Ebola outbreak, some domestic cases, um, really alerted a lot of folks, and then a lot of kind of funding that came uh, uh, passed by Congress to, to sort of prep for that. Um, now, there had been a lot of kind of bioterrorism planning, particularly since 2001 and the years that followed in terms of preparing hospitals for that. Um, it sounds like these biocontainment units kind of take it to the next level in terms of this really specialized infection control. Um, but what is, um, were, were there just not that many units out there? Was there not funds to support it, not enough need for it, or, or um, kind of what else kind I of made? I think a little bit of all of the above and the things that you just mentioned. Um, I think one of the, the key pieces of this is that a biocontainment unit isn't sort of the answer to population-based preparedness. And I think Michael alluded to that a little bit, that you know, every healthcare setting needs to have the ability and the processes in place to identify potential patients early on to protect the patient, other patients in that institution, as well as the staff within that institution. And so the system really wasn't in place, I think, preceding this. And now, as a result of this, you're absolutely right, there was federal funding that was allocated to that through an emergency appropriations mechanism. And so we're going to think about this in almost the best analogy is probably somewhat akin to the way that we deliver trauma care. Right, where you say there's highly specialized level one trauma centers who have to meet certain requirements and who have additional training resources in order to provide definitive care for the most complex trauma centers. And so you can sort of translate that into this biocontainment setting for highly infectious diseases potentially. And then, but everybody has to be prepared. A trauma doesn't, a patient with trauma or traumatic injury may not read ahead of time that <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm going to go where here because we're the level trauma. one center. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, 
they can present anywhere. And much like this, a patient with a highly transmissible, highly infectious, yeah. very dangerous disease can present to any site within the United States or obviously around the world. Yeah. So everybody needs to have this sort of um, structure in place to be able to identify these people earlier. And then there's the referral mechanism to get these patients to definitive care in a biocontainment unit. That first assessment that may not include things, even blood work. But just a good, careful history, a physical assessment, and uh, understanding the epidemiologic risk. Uh, and when that risk is high enough, having the systems in place to be able to communicate with the right folks so we can get patients to care for. I mean, it's really, really, really critical. And I think, uh, you know, thinking systematically like this is really important, but also having the training behind that. So it's not only these ultra-specialized units, but also every healthcare system has to has a role to play uh, in making sure that they're that they're training their frontline people because you know just any that that Dallas case is perfectly illustrative I mean the first person that patient met was a was a registrar you know in an ambulatory setting mm -hmm. you know how do you make sure that registrar the many of the things he or she has to do uh, at least has in their workflow a process that they can identify these folks. So this is kind of interesting. This sort of encompasses a lot of different, um, I guess, elevations and zooming in and out on the map, right? Zooming in all the way, we've got the biocontainment unit, which in my mind sounds very futuristic. If it's anything less than a big yellow spaceship, I'm going to be disappointed. Right? <laughs> Prepare to be disappointed. <laughs> but, but then backing out, there's a larger healthcare system that includes different actors. In New York, there's HHC, Health and Hospitals Corporation. That's the name, right? It's, HHC. It's New York City Health, Health and Hospital. New York City Health they and Hospitals, which rebranded. Re That's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. Um, as well as a lot of private hospitals and hospital systems, uh, nonprofits, uh, things like that, um, that all maybe compete with each other on a day-to-day -day basis, but need to work together in terms of this. I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit more. So say, uh, you know, I have Ebola, and I'll do what I normally do when I'm sick, which is go to work. And then, um, um, and then after that, uh, not feeling too well, leave early. Um, and then I'll go to an urgent care center or something like that. Let's say it's not affiliated with this. So what, what's kind of the ideal circumstance in terms of from me presenting initially to ultimately getting to this biocontainment unit and being treated from there? I'll, I'll let Michael add as well. I mean, from my perspective, what we would consider to be best practice or what we would like to see in the ideal settings in every setting to start by asking you as a patient presenting symptoms, right? So do you have fever? Do you have cough? Do you have rash? Because most patients obviously don't have Ebola, but you may have influenza and I don't really want that spreading around my urgent care center to other patients there or my emergency department. That's so starting with very simple questions based on symptoms first. And then if you have symptoms of a, of a potentially communicable infection, offering you the opportunity to mitigate the, your risk of spreading it by giving you a mask to wear and asking you to you know, do hand hygiene, wash your hands or use you know, hand sanitizer to mitigate the risk to the environment. And then proceeding to ask travel questions to help sort of risk stratify what you might be presenting with. Have you traveled outside the United States? I mean, Michael has extensive experience with this recently, given the measles outbreak in New York City mm -hmm. and in Rockland yeah. County, around this, which is not obviously related to international travel directly, but in terms of how do you keep measles from spreading within a healthcare facility? Yeah, it's 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 rapid identification of potential patients and sort of normalizing that. 
you know, when we go to a doctor's office or a, or a urgent care clinic or a point of care, wherever that may be, you know, um, a- actually having that be the norm, having people understand that's the norm. And, and if you are sick, it's okay that somebody gives you a mask and asks you to wait in a different location. It's okay that, you know, the doctor may, uh, she may prioritize you for going back into a certain location, you know, um, and having that really start there because if, as is the case many times, and I believe this is true in, in, in back in 2014, you know, patients hit and then they, they cycle through the system several times as they're getting sicker. And typically when you're getting sicker, you're getting more infectious. Sure. And then it, it, you know, by the someone's really sick and ending up in the ED, they've usually touched the healthcare system several points along the way. And those are opportunities. So having that urgent care center have a protocol, a process, which they which they actually work with the people in the front and and, and, and and drill essentially. It doesn't have to be something laborious, but just having somebody come in and say, I have a fever and cough, what are you gonna do next? And then that individual, that care provider in the urgent care center should know who to call. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and either that's a subject matter expert or you know, for us here in New York City we're lucky because we have a very, very proactive health department that's available twenty four seven. And we, we can get to a doctor pretty quickly yeah. who knows exactly the territory where these infections, which are going on every moment around the world, are occurring. Uh, so this risk is, is certainly does go up with these large outbreaks, but it's ever-present. And I think that's a thing that's ever-present. We need to get used to that. And I think you make a couple of great points, too, with regard to the, um, you know, uh, most patients don't have Ebola. Um, a lot of people maybe didn't believe that in 2014. There was a lot of hysteria, but at the end of the day, most people who came in didn't have Ebola. Um, and then, um, and the other being, uh, you mentioned the drills and things like that. I know there've been a lot of uh, mystery patient drills and ways mm-hmm. to just kind of test the system to make sure that um, uh, across the various healthcare systems, because obviously, as you mentioned, you can present anywhere. Um, so, so Sam in this urgent care center, they put me in the other room, talk about I've recently traveled somewhere with Ebola, showing symptoms, you know, all the things like that. Um, then uh, is it that point that, you know, once certain criteria are met that I'm transferred to the biocontainment unit? So we have a, a regional concept of operations or a regional CONOPS that defines some of those things, and that's been obviously a collaborative effort. It's not a Bellevue hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been very um, uh, developed you know, between the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, the State Health Department, multiple of our regional partners, multiple city agencies, emergency management, you name it, right? And so it's a big room of stakeholders trying to figure out how does this work so that everybody's safe and also we can continue normal operations and not shut down hospitals and not shut down emergency departments in order to do this. So basically what it would look like is hopefully this very astute urgent care center recognizes your risk. Only the best for me. They have a protocol in place that says, I'm going to call, I'm, I'm the frontline healthcare worker, I'm the nurse, or, and I'm going to escalate it to my supervisor who then knows what to do. The Department of Health would get involved and help risk stratify you to say, have you actually been in the right region, right? Because we all know Africa is a huge continent. Yep. We're not terribly good at geography, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, even areas of the Democratic Republic of Congo are about a, more than a thousand kilometers away from the current outbreak. So Good point, yeah. not every travel history looks at. So it's about there's sort of a risk stratification process or a risk assessment process. Um, but if it turned out that you had 
the right epidemiologic exposure right, and had risk and had symptoms, yeah, you would be transferred to somewhere in this tiered system for further evaluation. In New York City, that would probably mean Bellevue right now. Um, but there are other designated treatment centers within New York sure. City as well. They don't, they're not the HHS Region 2 designated center, but they are state designated treatment centers. Okay, great. Yeah, and I, I, I appreciate too that it's, uh, that there's a lot more complexity to all of these. I, I imagine, um, as physicians for both of you, that the, the eagerness of folks like me and others to, to try to get to a simple answer, and it's just not that simple, right? Like you mentioned, recent travel to Africa is not enough. Africa is very big. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, symptoms alone, right? Um, where you're at epidemiologically. And so that all has to be a part of it. And you also mentioned kind of the room. So if I'm presenting with symptoms, I'm very flattered. There's a room full of people, a lot of people on a call talking about me. This is great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that uh, um, involves emergency management, FDNY. You're talking about transport. You're talking about other hazards uh, around that. So this whole kind of system of systems that it requires gets very big very quickly. It does, and everybody has a really important role to play, and it's very, the exercises that Michael mentioned, you know, giving the example of the mystery patient drills, but we're doing, you know, full-scale multi-agency exercises as well. Because of all those complexities and moving parts and agencies needing to work together in order to keep everybody safe and take good care of our, you, in this case, our patient. Yeah, yeah, and it requires tremendous amount of communication. Um, and also just awareness where people understand that it's so important to, you know, to, to notify, you know, if you see something, say something kind of. Oftentimes, you know, folks tend to minimize. They're like, ah, you know, probably he's going to be okay or she's going to be okay, that kind of thing. But to know that, uh, that they need to, you know, raise the alarm, raise the concern early and stuff. Yeah. It's watching this evolve over the last five years, it's been really noticeably different. I, I think... You, at NYU and at Bellevue, we've always had a very strong relationship with the New York City Department of Health and very open collaboration. Yes. Um, but this has taken it to an entirely new level of collaboration and openness that I think improves the way we do lots of different things, yes. not just Ebola, um, but the way we approach outbreaks and the way we approach infection prevention and control. And I don't think that's isolated to Bellevue. I think that's part of building this system around recognizing that there is a population-based need for this, that we have to have protocols in place at urgent care centers and in every frontline hospital setting, as well as the ability to send patients to specialty centers for And I think that's a really, at least from the approach of infectious diseases, that's really new that came out of 2014, 2015. We didn't have that before. There's no doubt. I think that, you know, earlier on in life, I was at the city health department and... uh, um, you know, illustrative is West Nile and the mm-hmm. anthrax letters. There, there wasn't, I mean, there was certainly a health department and certainly there was, a, you know, uh, excellent, excellent folks in place. But it relied on, you know, West Nile was a, an ID doc that knew the ID doc at the health department and thought that she was facing an unusual patient uh, and, and, and calling. And luckily that ID doc at the health department was receptive. Anthrax letters is kind of a similar thing. We were lucky. It was an ex-Navy doc that said, this looks like cutaneous anthrax. I used to see in the Middle East. Yeah. You know, and so, but there wasn't this system in place. There wasn't this, and, and, and there was response and it worked out well and that kind of stuff. But I think you're absolutely right, Laura, that, that now there's a system in place that's built, you know, 
the, the structure around all these relationships that have been developed between public health and healthcare that's were more intermeshed than ever. You know, that's really interesting as well, too. When I first started, um, spent a little bit of time as an epidemiologist in Boston, there was a lot of funding for the syndromic surveillance systems and, and essentially just various systems for folks who aren't familiar with them designed to detect a disease electronically based on health records or, and things like that. Um, and uh, it was... Um, uh, this, a lot of the systems are still in place today, and they were very, very useful for describing you sort of locally what was happening, looking at trends, things like that. But it always came down to, and I remember our, our director of infectious disease at the, the health department would always say, you know, nothing will ever beat an astute clinician picking up the phone and calling. And every significant outbreak that we had always started that way with that physician responder relationship. And so it's interesting to hear too on how that sort of shifted from trying to bypass the human element to it sounds like these systems are really much more centered around that um, clinical relationship and much more yeah. person-centric than, than how we were trying to get around that. Both elements are really important and we're never going to devalue the astute clinician who notices an unusual right. pattern yeah. um, from that. But in some ways, that's already a little bit too late. Right. When you look at, if you look at the Toronto experience in SARS in back in 2003 or so, there were a, a very significant number of healthcare workers who were sickened by patient mm -hmm. care. And I don't know the numbers, the exact numbers offhand, but most of them were healthcare workers who were exposed to a patient before that person had been identified. So it was, you know, emergency medical services. It was nurses and docs who work in the emergency department. So before somebody had been identified as having risk, there was transmission. Mm -hmm. And then one of the really key pieces of this, and to get, you still need that astute clinician, but we want to put, we want systems to be in place consistently to reduce that risk to as low as it can. I don't think we're going to get to zero, but to reduce it to as low as possible within those studies to keep the other patients in that environment safe, to keep the healthcare workers in that environment safe. You're absolutely right. You know, that first time a patient hit, as I mentioned, they may miss, you know? Yeah. But if you have a system where you're constantly asking, you know, as Laura was saying, fever, cough, rash, that's sort of a part of the process, and, and people are thinking about it, then your, your chances go up. It sort of stacks it on the side of that astute clinician that's helped by a supportive system to say, you yeah. know what, <clears throat> this patient has fever and cough and they traveled from, you know, Hong Kong. And maybe um, as a side benefit, you have fewer employees out with seasonal yes. influenza. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, 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 that's really true. And this is, was always, and I, I should uh, qualify a little bit too with a lot of these electronic systems, is they gave a way to rapidly qualify the information that was coming in. I know when we would get a weird outbreak that we didn't expect, the first thing we would do is look at our citywide syndromic surveillance or, or one of those systems to see, is there something bigger going on here or not? And there was yeah. one particularly bad norovirus year where we had a strange outbreak and we were seeing a big uptick in gastrointestinal. So it's it, it's also, I think, an important point that, you know, the there was a lot of criticism of the Ebola emergency supplemental when it came out um, because we've seen um, healthcare preparedness funding and public health preparedness funding kind of drop over the years. And here was a big sort of box of money for one specific disease or one specific class of diseases, viral hemorrhagic fevers. But from listening to, to you as well, too, at any time we sort of have this um, work towards managing infectious disease at a systems level, 
it benefits all of the diseases that we're worried about. It's huge. It's huge. And I would say that just reinforce and endorse everything that you're saying there because you know it created these systems in place. It created an increased infrastructure at the health department to be able to handle these calls. Um, you know, um, and uh, it, it, it supports uh, hospitals like Bellevue who are able to, to, to create these kind of units and, and there's a tremendous amount of training as you, as you alluded to. Highly trained individuals that are there. And sure, Ebola's in the name because you know that's what the appropriations are linked to. But absolutely, the goal of this funding, in my mind, was to create a system that's not Ebola specific, but can be applied much more broadly. Because I, I don't, I don't think we're going to see, unfortunately, a large outbreak of yeah. Ebola in the United States. But could we see a you know a significant sized outbreak of MERS or? Yeah. Yeah. No, we don't really understand why SARS hasn't reappeared yeah. since 2003. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Pathogenic think, flu, you know. All these. Exactly. So I think we do think it's a matter of when, not if, there will be an outbreak of something highly transmissible. That, yeah. that, and it probably won't be Ebola. Yeah. yeah. And all these, all this preparation going right down the, to the front lines, front door, if you were saying, is going to be really, really helpful because you normalize it a little bit mm-hmm. and it becomes all of your processes are normalized around that. You know? Yeah. And, you know, I know I started out talking about kind of uh, uh, the funding for Ebola and kind of uh, uh, biased us a little bit towards that as a catalyst for this. But I think uh, both of you are also bringing up an important point that prior to 2014, there was a lot of work going on among these agencies already, right? That was a prerequisite towards being able to receive and do good work and continue to build the capabilities. Um, is that fair to say? I realize I'm putting words in your mouth here. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, yeah. I think you know, certainly there were already a few designated units within within the United States that had funding via other mechanisms preceding this that um, had probably 10, 10 or so years of preparation um, leading up to this without without direct patient care um, with that. And we use them as a big source of information because um, they'd had longer to think about their protocols and to develop them and to work through some of the kinks. This is all an iterative process. There is no sort of recipe book for yeah. how, to, how to take care of a patient in a biocontainment unit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we learned a lot from it, that's for sure. Well, and I, I guess what I meant too is that with the uh, West Nile, with anthrax, with these other kind of uh, mm-hmm. events, that they all um, also continue to sort of build the ecosystem uh, for this kind of epidemiology. They yeah. did. They did. I think that <clears throat> what was different about 2014 was we had a, uh, I mean, we should have seen it in SARS, really. But, 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 but with 2014, we had a situation where, you know, U.S. healthcare workers were getting exposed and some mm-hmm. of them were getting sick. Yeah. And, and it was sort of a realization. We had to train many hospitals as, you know. Laura was saying, you may have certain areas of, of, of excellence, but every healthcare system needs to be aware of the importance of this kind of triage because it, you know, <clears throat> when I think of that SARS outbreak that, that was so devastating up in Canada, you know, that index patient trans mm-hmm. through New York City, flew over, landed here, and then took a flight out to Canada. If she had gotten sick a little bit earlier, it would have been right here in New York. And, and I think, you know... We would still struggle with such a large outbreak, but at least now with this funding that's been in place, and these systems that have been in place for the last five years, you know, it still would raise the hair on the back of my neck. But, but, but we at least have some systems in place that we yeah. can handle it. 
But I think the you know the Ebola outbreak was also really interesting that there were I believe a total of eleven patients treated in the United States, and most of those were medically repatriated patients, so mm-hmm. flown to the U.S. in controlled circumstances. But the degree of disruption it caused the U.S. healthcare system Tremendous. was really tangible. Tremendous. Tremendous. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily take big numbers to affect delivery. Yeah. You know, I can't remember the numbers. I remember at the time uh, looking at the amount of waste produced on a daily basis. Uh, not the amount of the amount of medical waste that needed to be managed from an Ebola patient um, because it's you know you can't you know just rinse off the sheets <laughs> right uh, um, and just how much care um, goes into uh, treating someone with Ebola. Um, um, just sort of ballparking for folks who are less familiar, but for say someone with um, uh, a higher degree of infection, some of these some of these patients that were brought over, what does the wraparound logistics kind of look like, just in terms of the scale of the medical operation for one person? So most of these units operate uh, with between three and five nurses around the clock for a single patient. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them operate uh, with predominantly using intensive care unit nurses, so sort of your, uh, amongst your sort of most highly trained cadre of nurses. Um, so if you sort of, you know, back the envelope, calculate that, it's it's about 20 nursing FTEs for uh, wow. care of a single patient. Wow. <laughs> Usually that ratio is reversed. <laughs> 20 hours. <laughs> you know. um, and, you know, then you mentioned the waste, which is... Uh, you know, voluminous, um, but also expensive to manage. So you either, it's, you know, considered Department of Transportation Category A medical waste. And so you either have to be able to um, incinerate or autoclave it on site, which many places don't have the capacity to do, or you have to ship it as Category A medical waste, which adds extremely significant cost to it. Um, You know, in those six to seven figures, of waste for a a single patient. I I remember back in 2014, this was one of those kind of, um, I don't want to belittle the impact that it had, but with the relatively small number of cases that we were able nationally and locally to figure out how to manage that waste, because that took a bit of doing to figure out who was licensed to take it, what to do with it, develop the right protocols for that. Whereas if that had been a much larger outbreak at the time, it would have been a much bigger problem. Not that it wouldn't be now, but there's kind of a blueprint for how to manage that, right? Yes, although the the complexities, I think, were added to by some of the public fear around it. Sure. So the transportation issues were very significant around how certain states didn't want the waste to be transported even through their state. Right, right. Let alone taken to their state for... um, some strange quarantining going on and a lot of the use of the term out of an abundance of caution. <laughs> yeah, we grew to hate that phrase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so a lot of work has been done with this emergency supplemental. Um, and so what's happening, I believe, over the next year, year and a half, right, the, that supplemental is expiring, um, which means that initial funding that went into this is ending. So... Um, uh, are we prepared now? Are we good to let that lapse? Um, obviously, that's a 
loaded question, but um, so so what is uh, kind of the urgency for that? It, it's, uh, it, it creates an interesting dynamic as an emergency supplemental it wasn't passed as part of the normal budgeting process, which means it's not written into the normal healthcare preparedness funding, things like that. So if it expires, it's just going to expire and those resources are going to be gone. What 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 would the impact of that be if, if nothing happens? There's really uh, two, maybe three sort of core elements to the emergency supplemental funding that I think are really relevant and pertinent. Um, and one element is sort of the, the top of this tiered structure. So these regional designated treatment centers. So there are 10 designated regional treatment centers for Ebola and other special pathogens around the U.S. now, so one for each FEMA or HHS region. Um, it also created um, the National Ebola Training and Education Center, which Bellevue, the University of Nebraska, and Emory University co-lead a consortium to help train and prepare U.S.-based healthcare facilities to um, prove, you know, to uh, address outbreaks of Ebola or other special pathogens. So I think there's that element for it. And then it provided support to the other tiers in the structure, right? The hospitals, the frontline hospital setting, the assessment hospitals who may be prepared to care for a patient for a couple of days while awaiting transfer to a state designated or a regional treatment center. And all of those elements of funding risk going away. <laughs> and you know, to get back to your earlier question, clearly we're preparedness isn't a destination. We arrive there and then we're sort of static from there. Um, I think we have come a long way in terms of getting closer to this state where we're routinely asking symptom-based screening first, followed by travel questions, effectively identifying, isolating, informing the relevant public health authorities of a person with some epidemiologic risk, and then working on these relationships about transferring patients and getting emergency medical services prepared. But there's still a lot left to do. And I think we really are at risk of backtracking very significantly if the funding goes away. You know, hospitals don't have the you know operating margin to say we're going to continue to do this level of, of training and personal protective equipment, to do these levels of exercises, unless there's some support for it. And I think, unfortunately, the reality is hospitals are going to make us their own assessments as to what the risk is to their organization mm-hmm. and focus on those. Mm-hmm. And they may get away with it because they may not be the hospital that somebody walks into, but some of them won't probably. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I I think having this kind of infrastructure assists all the hospitals, not even those that are in this consortium, but having these hospitals around areas of training expertise. um, If that was to go away, uh, as Laura said, it's not if but when we'd be faced with another situation. Yeah, and I think it's the, you know, reflecting back that, you know, most patients that come in don't have Ebola. There's not really a market case to be made to have a a 20 to 1 ratio, you know. Uh, But that being said, once it does happen, it very quickly consumes the entire system um, if it's not properly prepared for it. Uh, It's also interesting to hear. So both, again, sort of looking at the different um, zooming in and zooming out is that the clinical operation is incredibly expensive um, for a very rare event. But then the systems level coordination where you're pulling together actors where even among the hospitals and the healthcare system itself are different independent corporations, nonprofits, public entities, all um, working together on some things, but then competing in other areas and then having to then go out further into the 
all those initial points of service on where I'm going to walk into um, if I'm a couple of weeks back from an exposed area and um, wanting to know what's wrong with me. Um, there's a lot of steps and a lot of people involved, both in my treatment, but also with protecting those around me to make sure that they don't get sick. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as you pointed out, there was, there was, there was certainly been coordination on the local level between healthcare and public health, and that was borne out West Nile and anthrax, et cetera. But, but uh, um, I think Ebola and, and these kind of infections take it to a whole other level. Um, you know, MERS and SARS would be just a, just a very significant impact on our healthcare systems as well, and, you know, potential devastating effects unless we're really well coordinated and ready. So if you weren't uh, uh, terrified before, <laughs> uh, you, know, going, yeah. you know, for me, the fear is, is, is even not so much the infections, which we know how to handle, although they can be very difficult. For me, the fear is just, as Laura, you were alluding to, that, that we let our guard down, that we, that we let these systems lapse. You know, and, and one thing that struck me at the health department, you know, after these anthrax letters, the department I worked in quadrupled in size. Mm-hmm. So, so it wasn't so much that it got big and bloated. In fact, it's back than where it was before. And if you look at mm-hmm. these infrastructures and systems, you know, what we had in place in the 50s, thinking about Cold War, what we had in place before that for mass vaccination campaigns, you know, that all kind of waned away. And it took a couple shocks to the system, I think. You know, each of these wake-up calls, just like you said, where really we're getting back to where we should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not like these these funds are are, are, are nice to have. Really, for a, for a complex, sophisticated health system that can be brought down by one of these cases, you know, that's a... That in any in any other scenario, you'd say this is a this is a this is a necessary. Component. I think people define resilience in a in a lot of different ways, and I know it's a hot sort of buzzword right now. But we should be seeking the goal where the healthcare system can continue normal operations while doing mm-hmm. dealing yes. with this situation. Right? People need ongoing care for everything that happens on a day to day basis. Right? Heart attacks, strokes sprained ankles right with we need to be not disrupt the healthcare system yeah. by some cases of a highly transmissible infection yeah you know I have a colleague from uh, Sierra Leone who's a, a, a youth advocate and a women's advocate there and he talks a lot about uh, this very thing on how you know one of the biggest casualties of the Ebola crisis beyond of course those who were directly exposed were those who couldn't access health care um, because they were overwhelmed with the Ebola cases. They couldn't travel because of the quarantines. And uh, people missed an entire year. A lot of kids missed uh, uh, an entire year of school or several months of school. And so their development was, was stunned. And so there were these cascading impacts really across the country that were only indirectly associated with the Ebola virus itself during the 2014 outbreak. And totally different scale. But even here in the U.S., you hear stories of cases of people presenting for care because something's wrong, right? They have symptoms, they have, they're have they there for medical evaluation, but they had some epidemiologic risk and the site they went to didn't feel prepared, didn't feel safe, and essentially provided minimal to no care or evaluation for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a real telling sign that people, most of these patients didn't have Ebola. 
Yeah. They came to medical attention for something else. Right. And so we need to make people, we need to make the system prepared so that they can get the care that they need. Well, I, I think this is just such an important topic and so many complexities to it, but also recognizing the clinical complexity, the systems complexity, and how how much, you know, sort of, uh, you know, we hear a lot of negative things about how all this money goes into preparedness. And, and I think it's both encouraging to hear how beneficial it's been for the, for the health and safety of, of those in New York, as well as those nationally and even globally, um, but also that it's a frail thing and it's something that we shouldn't take for granted and um, we shouldn't take the absence of illness as um, that the job is done. Um, so um, any, any final thoughts or uh, any ways, folks, if they're interested in, in learning more about the, the, the work you guys are doing or anything you want to close on? I think there's some great resources out there if folks are interested in learning more about it. I would um, direct folks to the National Ebola Training and Education Center or NETEC's website, which is www.netec.org. Um, and there's actually a lot of the training materials that we've produced on there, um, templates for exercises for healthcare coalitions, for frontline hospitals, for ambulatory care settings, for state designated treatment center so you can find a lot of resources on there and um, there's email address where you can access uh, subject matter experts not just from Bellevue but from Nebraska and from Emory as well if there's questions or concerns that come up from that and I think you said it really well is that this requires active maintenance mm-hmm. we've come a long way there's still a long way to go um, but we're going to lose ground if we don't sustain it Absolutely. And I think if you look globally at, at you know, health systems all around the world, some, some are, uh, you know, ha- have this more solidified maybe than, than, we, than we do here in some ways, you know, and, uh, and I think we have a lot of opportunity and, you know, lose funding would be, would be a serious issue. Well, well, Dr. Evans, Dr. Phillips, thank you so much for, for joining the conversation today. We really appreciate uh, all of the insights and all the work that you're doing every day. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, that does it for another episode of Disaster Politics Podcast. Thanks again to Dr. Evans and Dr. Phillips for just really eye-opening discussion into our Ebola and broader infectious disease response systems, uh, how useful the resources that have come in to help build that have been, how important it's been, and also how all the progress we've made uh, can, can quickly be lost if we don't sustain and maintain the infrastructures that we've developed. I encourage everyone to stay active in these discussions nationally, uh, as well as keeping a close eye on how this funding lays out with the sunsetting of the emergency Ebola funding. How does this get folded into our baseline healthcare infrastructure to make sure we keep moving forward instead of backwards? If you like what we're doing here on Disaster Politics Podcast, let's keep the conversation going. We're on Twitter at Disaster Politic. Uh, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and some nice comments on iTunes or wherever you download fine podcasts. If you want to be a guest on the show or keep the conversation going a little less publicly, you can email us at disasterpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you as always for listening. We appreciate you and whatever you're doing, stay safe out there.